Welcome to the Tech and Main Presents Podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Main, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now, here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking with Michael Logic. Michael is the Chief Technology Officer at Dashpin Capital in Chicago. I'll let Michael tell you about his background and amazing accomplishments. But first, Michael, welcome to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Thank you. Gratitude. It's good to be here. Oh, man, it's, it's equally a pleasure to have you on. And so, Brother Logic, with that introduction, please tell us about your background. Okay. So definitely being a lifelong uh, techie, uh, it's definitely a lifestyle, right? It's not a job. Coming from Chicago, Illinois, uh, born and raised. I spent some time in the East Coast in uh, DC metro area. Uh, went to uh, elementary school there for quite a while. Went to uh, Xavier University in New Orleans, uh, George Mason uh, in uh, Northern Virginia, uh, majored in computer science. Little known secret. I actually didn't graduate, did uh, at least five years in in uh, both institutions, like collectively. And I was recruited by Oracle uh, in my uh, last year uh, to go through a particular program and become an Oracle certified professional and was immediate placed with Northrop Grumman. Uh, they had a little division uh, that they started for relational uh, database management of the enterprise and government level. Uh, and the name of that company was called Logicon, ironically. And that was where I got my first letter of recommendation. That was where I had the first opportunity to work with tenured uh, engineers in a super large big data enterprise project. I uh, engineered a relational database management system for Orange County Police Department and Fire Departments. 1100 table database that uh, we got done six months ahead of schedule, getting that company over $27 million uh, before uh, schedule. So they were definitely uh, happy with it. And from there, um, I felt some kind of urge to want to own my own intellectual property and uh, play a role in different areas of technology. So it it basically forced me to jump out and start my own uh, consultation practice. So in uh, Washington, D.C. area, after working with Logicon, I consulted for a myriad of different like government contractors, I mean, government companies. Got a wealth of experience, but knew that I probably would need to locate to relocate to get deeper into commercial technology or deeper into tech that I really wanted to build. Uh, So ironically, uh, coming back to Chicago uh, is where I'm kind of rounding off the background story. And immediately after moving back to Chicago, found out that it was actually the move I needed to make to jump into some commercial technology that I wanted to do, which combined, let's say, interactive marketing and heavy software engineering, which would essentially probably make that like an online video game or uh, interactive promotions coming from large brands like Infinity, uh, McDonald's, uh, Skinny Girl. Uh, I did that whole project from front to back. Even the logo. Let me see who else. Uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, they had a project where we were taking action script 
uh, building an online application and pushing the precipice of accessible technology for blind and hearing impaired. Uh, and uh, me getting familiar with JAWS software, I think was probably one of my biggest and most favorite community development projects per se. I got paid, but we were developing for an underserved community. And I guess that rounds off the background leading up to uh, me starting Micrologic Administration in Chicago, developing some technologies and algorithms that blew into uh, full-blown businesses. And now you can say I'm a co-founder of two tech companies. One is a human behavior data company called No Planes. And the other one is Dashpin, which you just mentioned, which is the logistics tech company. Okay. So Brother Latte, a a wonderful, well-rounded background. But in that, I'm, I'm I want to pull something out. You've you've got again this this great background. But tell our audience specifically, what motivated you to pursue a career in technology? Ironically, it was uh, uh, one summer <laughs> in elementary school. I broke mine into the old oh, NES yes, with the uh, big yes. gray cartridges. Uh -huh. I remember. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So my friends were over at a sleep, were there for a sleepover. Uh, and so we went the rest of the night uh, not playing Nintendo. And when they went to sleep, uh, hey, I started uh, getting the idea like, man, let me just take this thing apart, see if I could fix it, see what's going on with it. I took it apart. Put it back together. And then they woke up, they were playing uh video games, Contra and Mike Tyson punch out with. And so from there, I think that's where my love jumped off. It was almost instantaneous, the gratification of taking this technology and uh making it work. And of course, that reverberated into uh uh more control as being a programmer or a coder. And the first time I got introduced to Pascal, I fell in love with. So I mean, I'd say from there. It was never a question of what I wanted to do. Like even from a PSATs, was checking off everything associated with computer science. Didn't hesitate. Um, maybe one of the biggest questions I think I have is why I chose uh, the school I chose would be one that uh, be in technology, going to Xavier University, where it was a heavy pre-med uh, curriculum, more so focused on uh, biology, medicine. But I went there and met some great people and uh, met a great professor. Uh, his name is Dr. Harold, Harold A. Foley. And he was actually the, the person that gave me the name Michael Lodge because I used to uh, come to class and not really study, but just understood what he was teaching. I could just get it, even to the point where I would give him some hassle sometimes. I, I apologize for that. Sometimes I'd be the, uh, the smart aleck kid correcting his code. Um, but it, it's pretty much been love from from that day. Well, Michael, I appreciate you sharing that mm -hmm. uh, that that precise reason for you getting into tech. Uh, as a as a kid who can remember those Nintendos from back in right. the day, yeah, Contra and yep. Mike Tyson punch out. Yep. Uh, yeah, that that brought yep. back memories. So I appreciate you doing that. Now, Michael, you have a philosophy named constructive versus destructive algorithm. Explain that for us. Okay. I'll use some of these terms loosely and maybe metaphorically. I uh, hope I don't uh, trip anybody up or maybe negate some knowledge that people have uh, in the area of cybersecurity. Uh, when I talk about how I chose to uh, 
place my focus uh, in uh, the field of computer science. Right? What would computer science look like if we were all trustworthy humans, loved each other, and didn't really steal or didn't really access anything that didn't belong to us or uh, weren't looking to trick or deceive someone? Right? Computer science would still exist, and all algorithms would be what I call constructive. Constructive algorithm, meaning that its base foundation principle is creativity and operation, right? The only reason why cybersecurity exists, you bring in, okay, all the thieves and everybody that steals now, you can bring them back into the world. The only reason why cybersecurity exists is to protect that which has been constructed, right? Then we go over to what I call destructive algorithms, right? And the basis of the destructive algorithms is kind of in the word to penetrate, to destroy, to bring about confusion, right? Destructive algorithms are the foundation of, let's say, what a hacker may use or what a fisher may use, what a spoofer may use. They are creating algorithms for these specific purposes of breaking into, destroying, uh, getting around, moving about, right? And most of the time, those particular algorithms or these constructs of these these programs, they don't serve the purpose of making someone's life easier per se, except for maybe that uh, uh, that hacker or that malicious person, right? But the constructive algorithms are the things in which our society runs on. They are our advancements. They are our shazams. Where once before, you hear a song, it's a good chance you just hear the song and nobody can tell you what song that is until a constructive algorithm inside of Shazam for audio file recognition or audio frequency recognition gave us the constructive new benefit of being able to instantaneously recognize audio outputs. Thus, the or of constructive versus destructive. And it plays a big role in how I look at cybersecurity. Okay. If that made any sense. No, that, that, that did. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think one of the things that our podcast does is and and I and I and I don't want to denigrate or disrespect a role that someone has at maybe Blackberry or Palo Alto Network or a role that someone has at a, at, a, at another company let's say. However, in, in most cases, what happens is when you work for Sentinel One, Palo Alto Networks, BlackBerry, they they have a very defined role mm-hmm. within which you should operate. Mm-hmm. Right? For instance, if they've hired you to market their product portfolio, then Michael, they want you to do what? Market their product portfolio, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If If they have hired you to be a threat intelligence analyst, what do they want you to do? They want you to analyze yeah. those threats. Yeah. And and yeah. so what 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 is my point here? My point is it is it is oftentimes when you well not oftentimes, most of the time, when you are not in a defined role within a company, right, you are able to one, think outside the box. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two is you have time to mm-hmm. develop um, these these thoughts, these philosophies, mm-hmm. right? And and three, you have the opportunity 
to take them in whatever direction yep. you want yep. and as you see fit. Right? Yeah. And so, so I say all of that for you to not apologize for what you shared, Michael, but just to underscore the fact that what, what you're sharing may, may be new to some folks or they mm -hmm. may not have thought about algorithms in that way. Mm -hmm. right? and, mm -hmm. and, and it's okay, mm -hmm. right? Because we we are all about new information, right? right? This this is not a five thousand dollar master class that someone's paying for, right? This right. is this is freely given, freely received, right? right? And so all we are doing is wanting the audience to be able to be exposed to some new concepts, some new information, mm -hmm. and then. Just like, just like with a good piece of chicken, right? You, mm -hmm. you eat the meat, you spit out the bones. Right, <laughs> right. So, so yeah, I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that. And I, again, I, I appreciate you yeah. sharing what you did Definitely. along those lines. Now, Michael, let me ask you this: mm -hmm. What would you say has been your most interesting tech development? Wow, my most interesting tech development. I would, I would have to say, I wrote a complete uh, platform group of algorithms, a whole commercialable system surrounding the question, what are you doing lately? We did a survey of over 250 uh, people of various age groups and professions. And what the most uh, popular answer to that question was, I got no plans, right? And so I created something called No Plans, K-N-O-W. Right. No plans pretty much is the best way to plan or not plan. Right. Uh, this is the start of what I would grow into a human behavior uh, data company as to where we were going to be experts in graphical movements and thought impulses associated with those geographical movements of humans within a 24 hour period. Uh, that may sound like some magic or, hey, Mike Lodge, you might be missing a few things. But with the concept of gamification, right, which I've definitely got a love for and jumped in wholeheartedly, right? This is basically a game developer kind of moving over into business logic and still kind of bringing some of his gaming spirit. Right? Thus, gamification is where a lot of the foundation of my uh, cool stuff came from. Through gamification, we put together a system. Uh, for consumers to engage that almost be just like Instagram. Uh, it would maybe look like Instagram, you know, but in the back, it would perform like Eventbrite. And then on the side, as it relates to how it interacts with the human, it's almost an, an, an antecedent of social media. Social media, you share, you share, you share without, right? With no plans, all of the algorithms and everything associated with how you interacted with it was about you discovering within. And then I'll leave it at that because there's a little, a lot of proprietary information that I haven't been able to uh, uh, patent and uh, then actually put the whole system out. It's in a uh, uh, a beta demo form now. And definitely I uh, put it on hiatus because of the pandemic. We weren't interacting during quarantine and uh, a big a uh, consumer from a business side of no plans was going to be like restaurants uh, and bars uh, because of the impulsive walking nature that uh, they ran their business. So I would say that's probably my, my 
most interesting tech project in a close second will probably be Freightbots. Okay, and I and I know we will we'll, we'll get into Freightbots in in a little bit, but I do I do want to ask how has foreign outsourcing affected domestic cybersecurity? Back when I was doing some uh, government contracting in uh, Washington D.C. area, um, I contracted with two companies that were actually foreign based. One was a a company that was owned and operated uh, by a Chinese business. The other one, I think, was out of Belarus, maybe that business. And what I noticed was how integral of a part they played in putting together mutation in official systems for the House of Representatives in Congress. It, It actually just completely floored me that this Chinese company had the contract for uh, turning the House of Representatives into a paperless operation. And so the technology that they were using at the time, I, I honestly can't even remember the templated stuff that I would do with uh, DTDs and Dynamics and now stuff like that. But as I was working with that particular project, I, it opened my eyes to just what the foreign role is in uh, maybe domestic cybersecurity. And it's like, what is the difficulty of a malicious hacker or person penetrating a system that they built the back door to? I mean, it's it's not as if these corporations that were building these things ran into a super high level of uh, technical scrutiny in which uh, every operation or uh, every piece of code that was put together was being manually scrutinized by some security cleared uh, uh, cybersecurity profession who could give the say of a yes or no, there's no backdoor in here. No, there's no malicious code in here. No, there's no uh, engineering in which if you just have knowledge of compromises the system. So Michael, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of and what I'm about to say is in the public domain, so I don't have a security clearance. There's no top secret high-level information that I'm not share. But when you when you think of what's going on with Huawei, right, and how the federal government is telling states, if you have Huawei gear in your network, you've got a defined period of time within which to pull it out. Right? Because Huawei, a Chinese-based company, is, and of course, their lobbying and their U.S.-based operations would say, oh, you have nothing to worry about, right? But there's, there's credible evidence that shows that they could be compromised by the Chinese government, a given situation. That, that situation hasn't necessarily come up, but we have enough concern as the U.S. government to say, yeah, pull their gear out. So much so that we've also gone to a number of our allies overseas and said, hey, if you want us to keep sharing intelligence with you, mm-hmm. if you want us to keep you know, sending aid money, we need you to go ahead and pull that, that, that Huawei gear mm-hmm. out. And so so that that's the thing, right? It's always and I'll and I'll and I'll say this last thing. It's always interesting to me when 
I hear the topic around, oh, there's millions of um, cybersecurity jobs unfilled, right? Well, here's, 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 here's my response to that. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's my admonition to those in places of decision-making authority. Here, here's what I would recommend. If you're familiar with uh, Junior ROTC, yes, mm-hmm. uh, there are hundreds, thousands of ROTC programs across the country. Right? ROTC is at the highest level a voluntary program. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right? At the local level, it is in a lot of places strongly suggested mm-hmm. and or compulsory. Right. Mm-hmm. So what what's my point, Michael? My point is this. If we if we would but take that same mindset mm-hmm. and that same, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. towards our ROTC mm-hmm. and apply that to technology and cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Right? And so have the junior ROTC version of cybersecurity, right? a, 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 a cybersecurity academy of sorts, then you knock out and completely eliminate those open requisitions. And there are a number of municipalities and local governments that are currently doing that. They are partnering with companies in their area right, to, to do that. And so, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's my two cents. Yeah, I, I think that 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 seems like a, a very good strategy. That's the first time I've heard it posed like that, and it painted a very vivid picture in my mind of how, uh, at mass or uh, with a certain level of expedited strength, to bring that type of training or that type of thought process down to a uh, high school level, as to where it's it's almost rudimentary education. It's almost like essential basics that you acquire. And uh, yeah, I think that's a great way to go about it because even then uh, it's a hands-on way of maybe even sparking ideas of wanting to go into that. And even maybe you mentioned it for that reason, but I even saw before having a career, just your basic training in human factors that would allow us to, in general, uh, increase our level of security. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, look, I, I'll say this this last piece. So ROTC, like I said, at at the highest level, voluntary. At the local level, I mean, there, there, are some, there are some studies and some different things going on right now which show that on the south and west side of Detroit, ROTC is compulsory. That, 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 that is being dealt with as we speak, Michael. But it, it goes to show... That again, if you if you focus kind of like a laser, right, you you are able to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And so to have that focus again be on a national cybersecurity academy, mm-hmm. right? a, a junior ROTC version of that, I think that would be amazing because what would happen is going back to my question about the foreign outsourcing as it relates to domestic cybersecurity, that project that you were working on, if if we had an academy, right, then what the House of Representatives would have done is obviously they would have been aware of it, right? And they would have said, hey, why don't we get 
the juniors and seniors in the academy to work on this project, right? Elim thus eliminating the need for any foreign outsourcing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Michael, this, this, this ties back to the answer that you gave about yeah. versus destructive algorithms. Yeah. Just having the ability and the opportunity to think outside the box, right? It, it, it's not, and, and I know this isn't anything related to, to technology, but the, this whole idea of food insecurity, right? Okay. Michael, we, we, and I can only speak for this house, right? Uh, for my family of three, mm -hmm. right? We throw away more food in a week, right? Salads expired. Got a couple different loaves of bread in the refrigerator. One of which is expired. We we throw out more food in a week than a lot of people will consume in a month's time. What's the point? If if we would work with our local food banks, mm -hmm. right? If if we would systematize that inventory mm -hmm. and 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 automate it. Mm -hmm. Michael, there is, there is, no, I, I firmly believe this and I, and I wish somebody would prove me wrong, but I firmly believe that there is a way in which folks in Nebraska, folks on the west side of Detroit, folks on the west side of Chicago, folks um, on the east side of Atlanta, they wouldn't have to go hungry, Michael. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I believe that, right? Yeah. And, and that's, and that's, that's, that's the power of technology, mm -hmm. right? And that's, yes. and again, that's just being able to think outside the box, Yep. right? Yep. You might be confined to, this is your role. This is what we hired you to do. This is what we've asked you to work on, right? Mm -hmm. You, you, you literally have the ability to expand your thinking mm -hmm. and, and allow that, 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 that God given mind of yours mm -hmm. to go to where it needs to go, which is to find a solution. Yep. We were, we were put here to solve problems. Yep. Yep. I'll be quiet. So, so it's like just in adding to that, uh, it just brings me back to human factors. So as a as a technologist for me to jump into who we are and what it means to be human. Right. Like a side tangent, I'm gonna leave it alone. I firmly believe that the further we go in our discoveries of of technology, artificial intelligence and quantum, uh, it's going to have us further question and further go through a journey of understanding what it means to be human, right? Let's, the, the, the impact of that statement uh, is really not felt until we discover something new about ourselves. And only then do those web of possibilities branch out from that one new discovery of who we are as humans allows us to go even further technically because what is a computer what is a full cpu but a model of the human brain in its most primitive format mm -hmm. and so if we're thinking about that then we're thinking about there are some computers that have been made to just steal because <laughs> we have people in this world who whole life culture uh definition of themselves is taking from others. I mean, there's just no way of getting around, it, right? Like they exist and they're here. And so, okay, the concept of cybersecurity really digs into humans more than it does systems. You mentioned this thing about the food banks. You bring up that word or that word comes up 
that lets you know that it's just inevitable that there are crooks, there are people stealing, and we do have to be proactive in creating our systems that way. We, we do have to be proactive in uh, what constructive algorithms we're going to create because even before you get to the systems, right, there are the human stealing already. So what's one of the reasons why a group of high school ROT-like cybersecurity professionals, I mean, or students moving into professionals or students who have just gotten a professional certificate of some sort could do what that Chinese uh, government contracted company did that I worked with that was part of the paperless operation migration for the House of Representatives. Well, the main reason why uh, those type of scenarios become susceptible to people stealing, right, is because those contracts are, are given to people who are historically given favor, right? And their premise, since they're just given favor or they're just given privilege is, hey, what do I do that allows me to work the least and benefit the most? This, this, the government just uh, gave me a contract for $20 million to build this dynamic document exchange. And what? I'm going to put this $20 million in the bank and I'm going to call Belarus or I'm going to call Prune India and I'm going to get this system built for $75,000. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, you get you a little 75K system built. Uh, this person that did pocket the $20 million, they're not a technologist. So it's not like they could just open up the can of worms and fix or detect or protect themselves once they get this package back. No, this thing is coming from Prune, India, and Belarus, straight for general commercialized production, ready to roll. Put your money in here. <laughs> and so, from that sense, um, you have this human factors economic issue that needs to be fixed before real cybersecurity could ever be addressed in America. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's so much more that that we could say mm-hmm. on that, Michael. But uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave it there because there, there are some other things that I want to get to. Mm-hmm. All right. So next up, how did you start Dash Paint and what and what is Freightbox? Okay. Dashping, I was introduced to the logistics industry by a my co-founder and uh, friend, uh, Michael Schreiber. We grew up in the same you know neighborhood area, south suburb of uh, Chicago, and uh, pretty much knew all the same people, but uh, we didn't actually meet until I moved back to Chicago. And uh, he made me look at it. He made me look at, hey, we live in we were born and raised in Illinois. Uh, the state that has the most registered trucking companies out of all states has uh, the largest by far of inbound, outbound shipment revenue for uh, trucking. And at the time I got into it was a $720 billion annual industry. Okay? Right now, it's a little bit over $800 billion now. We started a digital brokerage. I built, engineered all the code, came with all the business logic. And we built something called Dash Hall, which was really the Uber Freight, like about six months before Uber Freight actually came out. There was actually two tech blogs that wrote about Dash Hall being the Uber of Freight. And uh, when Uber Freight came out six months later, I was in some kind of meeting 
and went to go pull up those articles <laughs> and noticed that the uh, the uh, tech blogs had uh, removed those two articles because uh, they had to write about the real Uber freight map. <laughs> so I still felt good because I had the Google cache of those articles. So. But uh, in building that, we saw that uh, marketplace uh, model, the marketplace model for technology was pretty uh, expensive to be able to launch. And we weren't funded at the time. We were, we're still not funded. <laughs> but uh, we decided to go back in the bag and think deeper and say, let's keep innovating. Let's dig deeper into trucking and figure out what problem really isn't being solved that is very complex to solve because it may require a lot of automating, a lot of algorithm programming. And then once you're done with that, you have some really big human factor obstacles that you got to get past to solve that. And what popped up at us was trucker detention. What popped up at us was uh, a crippling uh, issue that even the government didn't have real good information about that even took MIT's Dr. Correll four years to discover. And that was uh, trucker detention, right? That was the foundation of freight bots where trucks would go into facilities and they would be held up for long periods of time uh, for loading and unloading, right? And just that issue reverberated throughout the supply chain and caused all types of trouble, like termites in the house. <laughs> and uh, a good sister of uh, trucker detention is uh, intermodal demerage. And that's basically just detention, but with uh, shipping containers. And we saw that if we automated um, uh, operational issues and uh, tracking issues and uh, data silo uh, issues, breaking down data silos with this software package, we could be one of the most uh, impactful tools uh, that this industry has seen in decades uh, for trucking companies. And this is definitely a multi-billion dollar problem, okay? Close to 60% of uh, demerage and, and detention accessorials go uncollected by the trucking companies. And FreightBots is that answer. Okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Now, let me ask mm -hmm. you this. What cybersecurity protocols protect FreightBots? Okay. We had uh, unique circumstances. Uh, we had unique human factors. And it just forced us to create a internal protocol, application uh, protocol called DTO. D <laughs> I haven't said this or looked at it in a long time, but uh, DTOs is an acronym, T-O-E-S, standing for Dynamic Tracking of, oh man, let me, let me, let me look at my, uh, yeah, no, take, 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 take your time and look oh, it up. Jesus. That's kind of funny. It's like I, I, I coded it, but I can't even remember the name of it. Okay, hold on. Is that actually, I need to know this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> DTOS is Dynamic Tracking Objects for Encrypted Signatures. Okay. And what that basically means, and I, I got to do it in, in, in vague terms because it's uh, actually uh, patent pending, but picture... In an industry where the main people that need to use this technology to input things are 
very low on their trust levels and on their desire to use technology, even to the point where they're almost retarding it to the point where it affects their income. Okay. So you have to factor in the very, let's say, uh, frivolous or uneducated user. You have to factor in the data silos in which many, many systems are trying to talk to each other, right? And uh, the fact that there's going to be document exchange that just like some some purposes people try to use a blockchain for, we want to have uh, immutable records and trackable records uh, that uh, can be seen by all parties that need to see. And so what this custom protocol did was put a level of tracking and a level of the word, I love this word, obfuscation to the ability to to uh, know where this document is and know contents and title of this document, right? That is almost like water or almost like invisible ink. You won't know those things until you actually go to look at them in a, I wouldn't say approved, in a, in a device running this application that has cleared all of the particular checkpoints, ones in which the human is not responsible. So, Michael, here's, here's, here's what I love about the podcast. We get to bring on great folks like yourself. It's not so great about the podcast is we, we've come to the end of our time. Oh, okay. Man, I am, I am, I am loving the conversation. I'm loving just the, the, the different places, the rabbit holes, the, the strings that we've been tugging on. But Michael, before we go, I always mm-hmm. love asking this question. And that is, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? The biggest advice I would give my 18-year-old self is to be patient because everything is going to take time. Just because you're smart doesn't mean that you can uh, cut corners that others have not. And then two, I would say, attack your government paperwork as hard as you attacked your private endeavors. Because uh, yes, you were able to put together some great technology. You were able to even network to the point of getting some very small friends and family around funding uh, and then grow a business to fund yourself to move forward. But had you attacked just your government registrations, just your government filings in the same manner, this road probably would be maybe slightly easier and maybe even more dynamic. Probably could have done more sooner. Okay. And so, Michael, with that, my friend, thank you so much yes, sir. for being on the podcast. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it too. Yeah, I love being able to, to dive in like that with you. Before we go, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Uh, the best way, I would say, would be, well, you can do Twitter. Musk is got everybody squared away, right? Uh, Mike Logic, M-I-K-E-L-O-G-I-C. That's, I'm on Instagram a lot too, actually. Uh, and that is, handles just Michael Logic, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-O-G-I-C, Michael Logic, no spaces. You can also, uh, reach me at MikeLogic at dashpin.com. That's my email address, MikeLogic at dashpin.com. And I, would love for you to come visit us and just see what we have going at uh, dashping.com as well, because it can tell you about freight box. Okay, great. Well, Michael, again, thank you so much. For thank your you. Time. 
And Tekame Presents family, thank you as always for listening. Be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Bye. Okay. Keep pushing keys. You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends. And thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.